Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 71. Lead Like a Rockstar, featuring Ruth Blatt. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Our guest today is Ruth Blatt. She is a social scientist who's been studying and writing about the social science behind rock and roll music. She's been interviewing bands and band managers and basically studying what can we learn from a teamwork and management and leadership perspective from the experience of rock bands. And she caught my attention because she's been writing for a regular writer for Forbes, and she's been basically been catching a lot of people's attention. So we were really glad to get her on the Engaging Leader podcast. Ruth Blatt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jesse. Great to be here. So tell us, how did you get into this topic? What, what made you think that rock bands were worth studying from a management perspective when most of us think of them as sort of countercultural and perpetual adolescence? Yeah, so that's how I viewed them as well, and I was a um, very happy consumer of, of that perspective of them, of rock bands, and you know, I always loved music. Um, but then when I was in graduate school for management and organizations at University of Michigan, uh, I was working on my dissertation about teams, and I was really interested in teams that were doing work that was creative, and they were doing it outside of standard organizational situations. Um, so I was thinking entrepreneurs, and that was what my dissertation ended up being about, was entrepreneurial teams in um, high tech and biotech, and I was really interested in what happens when a group of people has to be creative and business-minded, but they don't have the support of a big organization that dictates kind of how it's done. So I was working on that, and you know, late one night I was watching a documentary about Metallica called Some Kind of Monster. And it documents how they made a, uh, an album. It was, I forget how many years into their career, but they were already famous and established. And, um, you know, and they were struggling with a lot of internal issues. They were struggling about how to define themselves creatively and, and kind of how to proceed now that they weren't angry young men anymore, but they were kind of entering middle age. And so they had all these issues. And there were these scenes where they were sitting around conference table with their bottles of water and having these really intelligent, rational discussions about, you know, how are they going to continue to thrive as a team, as a business? How are they going to continue delighting their fans in new ways and, and who they are? And all these, these really cool processes that were documented in the movie. And I was like, oh, yeah, they're a business team. You know, they're just like the entrepreneurs that I'm studying. And initially when I saw that, I thought it would be really cool to use that movie for teaching because I was also teaching business students and you always want to show examples from, from new kinds of places. And, um, but I couldn't do that because of the language in the movie. So, you know, I kind of put that <laughs> idea aside. But I always had it in me to think, you know, this thought that, um, you know, what if we looked at rock bands to see what we can learn from them, especially the ones that have shown longevity like U2 or, um, you know, Green Day or, some, you know, some of these bands that have been around for so long and they're still making new albums, they're still doing new and exciting things. And um, 
And the more I, be, I began to learn about it, I realized that, first of all, it was very rare in the business world for, or, or academic world or any kind of world where teams have to do creative work, it's very rare for the same team to stay creative over time. So I was like, wow, these bands are doing something that other people haven't been able to figure out. And as I learned more about rock and roll and, and kind of behind the scenes of music making, I realized, I realized to what an extent what we were mentioning about you know, musicians being these perpetual adolescents, how much of that was a myth and how much of it was just like part of their product, you know, their, their selling use. And um, and so as I began to learn more, I just became more convinced that we can learn from them. It does seem like a, an oddity in the world of rock and roll music for a band or even a, a single artist to continue at the same high level of creativity and innovation that they had when they're younger. And you're right, that does, that seems to be pretty common to teams of all types. You think of of a lot of businesses that that were innovators at the beginning and once they get big they pretty much spend a, a lot more time and effort to come out with things that aren't particularly that great i mean just think of microsoft and how long has it been since we've really seen anything truly innovative from them but then there's others and of course the obvious one that we point to would be apple that that still seems to be amazing people with what they're coming out with and that and so there's something that obviously those types of teams are doing differently Right, right. No, absolutely. And, and one of the things that I've discovered as I've done this research is that success has its downsides. You know, we, we always strive for success, and there are so many books out there that try to teach us how to be successful and, you know, how to make a successful team. And then it's just like telling people how to get married, but not telling them how to stay married. You know, it, it's, it's a lot of work, and success has a lot of, a lot of downsides. And one of them is um, that it can make you risk averse and conservative because you you think whatever it is that may be successful is what you need to keep doing and you you become attached to that success and so eager to hold on to it that you're you're afraid to take risks so that's one side of it and also you become complacent and you know egos come in and you're just like hey I figured it out what I did obviously brought me to this point so I'm just going to keep doing it um, you know you become um, so all these all these downsides can happen when you become successful and that people aren't necessarily prepared for, right? I mean, people get promoted and all of a sudden they're doing work that they don't like because it comes with this new job. Well, for rock stars, it's the same thing. When they were aspiring and dreaming of success, then, you know, they, they were playing a lot of music. And then once they become successful, they find themselves... Uh, at a lot of meetings with with accountants and lawyers and business managers and uh, people from the press and media and things like that that they don't like to do and and it can cause burnout and things like that. So that was one of the things I learned was just that um, that can happen is that success can help see um, your decline. And and so it became interesting for me to look at what we can learn from these successful bands and also from cases of bands that were successful and then, you know, fell, um, you know, how to prevent that decline and, and stay creative. Well, one example you've pointed out of a band that came out very successful and then the success ruined them, at least in the short term, was was Guns N' Roses, which uh, caught my attention when you wrote about that in Forbes because their first album, Appetite for Destruction, hit me right in junior high, <laughs> which is right. like the perfect time to be paying attention to new bands. And they, of course 
it seemed like they came out of nowhere and, and in fact they had that was their debut album and wasn't it like the the greatest selling debut of all time at that yeah. point yeah yeah and, and they got to that point f- uh, through extreme some extreme hardships uh what you you kind of talked in the article about some of the challenges that i i hadn't been aware where aware of but then that success that hit them wasn't enough to to keep them together and it, it's kind of counterintuitive isn't it that sometimes the the hardships bring a team together more yeah yeah absolutely you know in the article i talked about it as their version of sweat equity you know i mean they you know they were so determined to succeed and so, you know, one of the incidents that happened was that their first tour that they went on, they were completely broke, you know, and their car broke down and they didn't have any money and they were hitchhiked and they, you know, they didn't have food so they, they, they picked onions from a field and they ate onions. And I mean, it was, it was that determined <laughs> to make it to their gig, you know, hundreds of miles away in, in Seattle. And they moved it. And, you know, along the way, there's really great stories where, where people are, like, picking them up or, or letting them sleep in their backyard or whatever. And they're like, your names are... Axel, Izzy, Slash, I mean, like, who are you people, you know? Like, they just had these weird names and these weird looks, you know, they, you know, they looked really strange and, and you know, but the people helped them out and they made it to the gig and there were only maybe five or ten people there, but they played the show and they really gelled as a team at that point because it was so clear that, you know, we're going to do what ever it takes that, you know, we really believe in this band and we're going to work together to make it happen. And, you know, they lived together in horrible conditions and what were like a converted garage, basically. Um, but, but they were very persistent and they, you know, they played a lot of shows and they, and they collected a long list, a long mailing list of fans and, you know, they, they, they got people to come to their shows until they really made a name for themselves. So, so that those early days were really great. That you know, Slash in his autobiography, he talks about how they were like a real family. They were like a gang. They looked after each other. They partied together. They worked together. They spent all their time together. They were so close. And then once they skyrocketed from being five broke guys living in a garage to being a top management team of a multi-million dollar business. I mean, they they just found themselves in a completely different situation that, you know, they were just up against completely different things. And so, you know, they weren't able to sustain that sense of togetherness, of common mission, of camaraderie that they had when they were just so broken and striving. So if we're listening to this and we're, we lead teams, what do you suggest that we take away from that story? Well, I think from that particular story, it, I think it's, important to really build, to really invest in building the team, um, you know, the way that they did in the sense of building the true camaraderie and sense of common purpose. Um, but then, but then the, the effort becomes to maintain it. So if they were like a family or they were like a gang early on, they really lost that camaraderie over time. And, and so I think, you know, one of the lessons that I, um, that I, that I've discovered is that the, the longstanding bands are the ones that, that they stay, they stay familial. So, you know, a really great example of that is the Red Hot Chili Peppers, where, you know, they've been together for a really, really long time. And again and again, even as their band has gone through many troubles, you know, they, they had a, a person um, die, they, they've dealt with drug addiction, they, 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 they had albums that really bombed. I mean, they, they, they lost guitar players. They, they've been through lots of turmoil, but 
all all the time they they really cared about each other first and foremost as individuals as people and you know and and they you know and they kept that bond really really strong and that is what enabled them to then be resilient in the face of all these changes and all these troubles that they you know that happened to them so i think you know the first lesson is that you know you you can't just start treating each other poorly um you know and disrespectfully you know, once you're famous, uh, you really have to keep the team connected to each other. So that's one thing. I think the other thing with Guns N' Roses and, you know, all the members who've written um, memoirs from that band have talked about this, that they weren't able to really talk about the difficult issues that they faced. So, you know, once success happened and, and so many things changed for them, they, they really needed to make sense of, you know, what this meant for them, you know, what they should do. Um, musically, what direction they want to take, the kinds of conversations that Metallica was having that were documented in that movie that I saw, you know, really needed to happen in Guns N' Roses as well, and and they weren't. And so, you know, they didn't. They were not having difficult conversations, or they weren't confront, confronting each other with the difficult things. So, you know, like Axl Rose would start the show really late, and the other band members thought it was disrespectful to the fans. But they didn't really bring it up. They just put up with it because they didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to disturb the peace. They're like, hey, we're still the greatest rock and roll band in the world. The fans are still having a good time. You know, let's just let's just deal with it. And, you know, on, on his end, Axl Rose felt like, you know, some of his band members were were getting way too wasted. And, you know, they're kind of, like, becoming addicts. And, and he didn't like that. And, and so his way of dealing with it was to um, to go through lawyers and present them with various kinds of deadlines and contracts hmm. and and the, you know legal things. And so they weren't able to just sit down and look each other in the eye and just be like, "Hey, brother, I'm really concerned about your addiction," or "Hey, let's think about how do we put on the best show for our fans and what is that going to require." And so, so I think that's the other piece of it is that that though having those confrontations to keep to keep things going as you transition from aspiring to successful. Yeah, that's interesting, and it's a bit of a paradox that the tough times actually strengthen the team, and so when you're in the course of those building times, you need to be laying groundwork that's going to keep you successful when when things are, are better. And also, you, you mentioned in that article that you related to studies that show that the actual team-building exercises, let's say like an off-site um, challenge course or projects that really impose some tough constraints can bring a team together versus just pure networking or having a a party together or massages at work or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the question there is, you know, how deep are these connections? You know, a lot of times we see the people we work with as mostly just there to get the job done and and our relationships become very instrumental in that way you know we just kind of invest in them as much as we need to to just kind of get by and and do our work successfully and and that's okay as long as things are are good but once you go through some kind of turbulence which is almost always inevitable right i mean you're going to have shocks whether it's positive shocks like like unexpected success or negative shocks like unexpected failure um you know you're you're going to need Relationships that are are much more versatile and and much kind of much deeper and more resilient. So um, and so it's more it's it's better to build um, 
to build those relationships as, as deeper from the start, you know, and so that you can really tap into that as a resource when, when you need to, to go to some kind of impasse. So, you know, there are teams and, and businesses, just as there are bands, who, who get put together because, you know, people have the best skills for the team. And so you put together a bunch of people who are optimally selected in terms of having complementary skills and exactly all the skills that you need. But um, if if you don't work on really strengthening the, the the bond between them, making sure that they you know they know each other really well, they they care about each other enough to help to help each other out if if one of them is is having a tough time or to be able to confront each other if if there's something difficult that needs to be said, um, you know if if you haven't built those kinds of connections, um, it's going to be really hard to keep the, the team together once once challenges come along. A lot of your writing is analyzing which bands have stood the test of time and are continuing to be successful and relevant and innovative despite decades of of working together and conversely learning from bands that that um, didn't haven't stood the test of time what's a what's another band you mentioned red hot chili peppers uh, what's another band that you hold up as a pretty good example of one that's that succeeded over time and, and has some good lessons for work teams and leaders I mean there's so many I mean you know you two is a great example um, uh, Radiohead is a really great example both you two and Radiohead are interesting because both of them took a really sharp turn uh, at the peak of their career they were able to switch from a mostly guitar-based sound to a more electronic sound, and they did it successfully in both cases. And, you know, if you look at how they did that, um, they went through very similar processes, you know, and they built on, um, you know, having some of these difficult constructive conversations that, you know, where they really needed to confront the fact that, you know, maybe what they've been doing wasn't going to work anymore. Maybe it was time to bring in something else, something new, some new influences. And in both cases, there was some resistance from from part of the band where they were just like, well, if, if I'm not going to play, like, for example, with U2, um, Bono and the Edge wanted to bring in drum machines. And the drummer was like, well, then what am I going to do? What do we need a drum machine for? We have a drummer. You know, and he, he, saw this, that, he saw that as a real threat. And then with Radiohead, you know, that, that band has three guitar players. And Tom York came by and was like, you know what, let's not play guitar anymore. Let's, feel, you know, let's make all our music electronic and not play guitar anymore. And so, so some of those guys were like, well, then what are we going to do? I mean, how are we going to contribute? And it was a real threat to them. So, you know, but in both cases, they were able to, do, to make the change successfully. And each member of the band was able to grow as a result. But also, the, you know, the music really evolved in, in ways that fans liked. You know, I mean, they, you know, their albums, their new, you know, albums sold. So, you know, and and when you read about what what happened, is you know, it, it built a lot again on the on this kind of caring and, and the commitment to just like, okay, we really want to keep this team together because we think, you know, we've got something here. But here are some tough issues we need to bring up and discuss so that we can move forward and make a change. Another example is Green Day who went from being this kind of, you know, three-chord punk song, bratty punk songs, you know, when they started out, to to writing a, a rock opera, to putting it on Broadway. You know, such a shift, such a change over time. And, you know, and they, they instituted a practice that they, you know, weekly mandated conversation time where they were like, okay, we need to talk about why we're not talking, you know, why we're not getting along anymore, why we're too afraid, too afraid to rock the boat. Um, and, and, and one of the articles I read about this, the I think it was the drummer or somebody said he's like well and we the first thing we said was that we care 
you know, that we really care and we want to keep this going. And then we, we took it from there and they were able to make that transition. Wow, that's that's something. So it's just amazing to me how that parallels with what a lot of thought leaders are, are talking about in terms of crea- creativity and innovation in the business world and the importance of bringing in fresh talent, fresh ideas, shaking things up. And just, to, I mean, sometimes those almost seem like arbitrary constraints. Hey, let's let's do electronic music, even though that's a completely different style. But it does, by by forcing those kinds of constraints or bringing in brand new ideas and talent, it's amazing, as you said, it, it didn't just cause the band to be more successful, but it actually caused the individual band members to be more successful. Yeah, and to grow. And so, like, for example, with you too, you know, the album that I'm talking about was Askong Baby that they made, um, you know, that was more electronic, more edgy. And they all, each and every one of them underwent a personal transformation. So Bono went from being this, like, earnest young man who, you know, sings, uh, you know, very soulful kind of spiritual music to taking on this the fly, which is this rock star character. You know, he put on these big sunglasses and leather pants and started acting like a jerk. And that was just... <laughs> You know, it was it was liberating from him to be out of that persona and, and and try on a different persona. And then for you know for for the the rhythm section, um, Larry Mullen Jr. and Adam Clayton, the ones you know they were the ones who initially resisted this change the most. They actually went on to I mean it was it opened up a whole new um, phase of their career that you know they they, they learned, relearned their instruments. They, they kind of went back to school. They approached it in different ways. They took lessons. And then together they created the soundtrack to um, Mission Impossible, the, the you know, the first one with Tom Cruise. Hmm. And it's like an electronic album. It's, I mean, if you hear it, it's like a little single with, with five tracks on it, five versions on it. It's very electronic, and they made it. I mean, they, you know, they really embraced it in the end and, and took it to an exciting place. One band you've been writing a lot about lately, and it caught me by surprise, is Metallica. Because I, that's just never a band that I even thought anybody would take that seriously, especially from a business perspective. And yet, the, as you point out, they are an enduring band, and and they're they're doing new and exciting things. Yeah, you know, Metallica is, um, you know, they they're in, they're not afraid to take risks. I mean, they are they can be afraid sometimes after they take a risk, they they regress a little bit, but. Um, you know, they did this very experimental album with Lou Reed called Lulu that was just, I mean, people made fun of it. You know, it was some, somebody wrote that it didn't even deserve to be on, to be to, to be like the worst album ever made because that would even be too much praise for it. I mean, it was like, <laughs> people were really mean about it. And, um, you know, but they, they, you know, they took that risk. I mean, they, they could have just kept doing the same thing over and over again and made a perfectly good living just giving their fans the same stuff that they've been doing all this time. But but they're adventurous creatively and they're adventurous and you know and they're willing to put their reputations on the line and put themselves on the line, put their money on the line. So with this new T V movie that they made, you know, it was self financed. So they put their own money on the line and um you know, they're willing to take those risks together because they're the creative people and um and, and, and they, you know and they're among these Artists, you know, like Green Day too, who are willing to look beyond the, you know, album tour, album tour cycle, and 
look at different ways that they can present their music to their audiences, you know, whether it's film or theater or, you know, other kinds of experiences or festivals, you know, like with the Lions Fest. So so I think they're a really interesting band and, and, and because they, they have had that longevity and they keep coming up with, with new things to do to keep them engaged and to keep their fans engaged. With their movie that's that just came out, Metallica Through the Never, it's it's groundbreaking because it's uh, a feature length movie. It's 3D, and it's not just following the band around. There's an actual storyline to it, right? Right, right, yeah. So it's kind of it's like a feature concert hybrid. It's a it's a feature movie in which a concert takes place. And I guess you, I I really loved the article you wrote. Uh, uh, you've written several things recently, but one article you wrote about them was analyzing how they handled the creative leadership of that movie because you have a gr- you have a team of musicians and they're actually leading in this case the a, a team of filmmakers. So it's it's outside of their expertise, and yet the very attributes that have made them successful as creatives really contributed to the su- success of this movie. Yeah, right, because, I mean, the key is that they didn't micromanage, right? So as creative people, they know how stifling it can be when somebody is micromanaging you. And they also have the the wisdom to admit that, hey, filmmaking isn't what they're expert in. They're musicians, and so they're open. They were open enough to give freedom to to the director and, and his team to, to kind of do what they do best. And so they, you know, they were involved and they provided guidance, but you know they also had the courage to just step back and and see see what what happens if they relinquish control a little bit and and see how it can go in, in new directions and you know and, and it's a cycle because they you know they let go they let the director come up with the storyline and and do do a lot of the work and then cycle it back to them and they put the metallica stamp on it because it was still going to have their identity um but but you know it really wouldn't have become what it became if it had been a completely, you know, conceived from start to finish by, by the band. So they didn't micromanage. They recognized that they weren't the experts. And also they they really kept their egos back, kind of, their egos were not front and center. They were really more about what's best for the film, and to, the, to the extent that even people that were working, for example, on building the stage set actually commented that, you know, you'd expect that these guys would have huge egos, but that's not really what we were up against. It was really all about the purpose for, for why we're all working together. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, um, it, it, you know it's, it's not about me. It's about what's best for the film. And, and I think that's something that, you know, musicians really understand, because, especially in bands, because there's constantly that push and pull between me, the rock star, me, the ego, me who knows everything and is so talented, and, and, and the bigger picture, which is what's good for this song, what's good for this album, what's good for this show. And the really great bands are the ones, where, you know, where people are able to put their egos aside and realize that it's not just about me, it's about what's it's about something bigger than me. It's about what's right for the song, what's right for the album. And if that means that I'm not playing an instrument on the song or I have to take some other role um, to support another member of the band and it's the best thing for the song, then that's what I'll do. And that's that's one of the things that makes a really great band. Ruth, uh, before we run out of time here, let me just ask you, what what has been the biggest surprise uh, that you've found as you've been interviewing the, these bands and their management? Um, so one of the things that 
was very interesting to me was that team decline is not inevitable. So a band or any kind of team, whether it's a small business, you know, a startup team or a band, um, they can get together, they can have a really great period, a very productive period, and then they can stay productive and they can continue to grow and thrive. And and that's been one of the really delightful discoveries of this project is um, seeing how that pans out and seeing the wisdom that it takes to, to keep teams thriving over time and then think about what can we learn, you know, in other domains about, you know, do we have a team that's worth fighting for? You know, is this a really great team that is worth investing the effort to keep it going and keep it um, growing and thriving uh, in the long term? Ruth, your website is therockbandproject.com. Um, where where do you recommend, uh, besides that, that people find out about you and, and stay up on what on the work that you're doing? Um, yeah, so therockbandproject.com is a good place to start. Um, my Twitter handle is at Ruth Blatt. Um, most of my articles um, right now I'm writing for Forbes. So, you, you know, if you just Google Forbes Ruth Blatt, I have a page there and it has um, all of my articles on it. Uh, I have also blogs in the Huffington Post and Wired um, and Psychology Today. Fantastic. Ruth Blatt from The Rock Band Project, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thank you so much for having me, Jesse. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. We will provide the links and contact information for Ruth Blatt on our show notes for this episode. You can find the show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 71 as in episode 71. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about.